All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckadelics? It's me, Mark Marin. I host this show. This is WTF the podcast. Welcome. Uh, if you're new, as I see some of you are at times, I'm looking around. Uh, welcome. There's a lot of, uh, there's, I think, we, are we officially a rabbit hole yet? When does WTF become a rabbit hole? Let's say that I am. If you're just getting in, you want to go over to Howl, howl.fm, and uh, go down the rabbit hole of, uh, of the complete archive. So pretty exciting show today in my mind. Uh, we've got George C. Wolf on the show today, who is a, an amazing and important theater producer and director. Uh, I went to see his new show, Shuffle Along, or the making of the musical sensation of 1921 and all that followed, which is based on, it's based on an old play, Shuffle Along, and it's sort of, that play is sort of within the play with some of the songs, but it's it's put into a different context. It's deconstructed to explore the impact of that play and the careers of the people that were involved in that play. And it was, it was pretty fucking phenomenal for me because there was a lot of history there that I would not have ever known. And there was also a lot of explaining and historical context for trends in, in dance and theater uh, and in you know in black entertainment at the time and what it, the impact of that and, and where how that fragment it was a fascinating thing I'll talk about it that in a bit but he also directed and produced the two angels in America in New York he did Jelly's last jam was his first uh, big success uh, in New York he did Caroline or change which was another uh, Tony Kushner play along with the angels the two angels in America anyways very important theater presence and power i was thrilled to talk to him i'm also going to do a a little talk with daniel nazer about uh where the patent troll issue is some of you who are just getting on board missed uh, missed the panic and fury and and chaos of when podcasters were being attacked by patent trolls who wanted to uh, shake us down for a uh, a licensing fee of uh, nebulous amounts that no one, I, I don't believe anyone buckled, but they, they were definitely, uh, you know, Corolla ended up in court on this thing. And I guess a lot of us thought it was over, but it is not quite over. And, and we're always vulnerable to this kind of horrendous bullshit uh, from, uh, from predatory uh, lawyers and uh, so-called inventors. We talk. I talked to uh, Daniel Nazer a bit about that to find out what the odds are and where that's at and, and how safe we are. But uh, it's good to good to catch up on that malfeasance. The AT and T issue. I, I some of you are keeping abreast. I, if anyone out there knows anyone or, or knows even what this job is, I'd like someone to come to my office with some sort of machine that assesses the amount of RF or bad waves or whatever waves are coming into my office because I'm no longer concerned just about the stereo uh, and and the horrendous machine-like techno buzzing that's coming through it. Uh, I'm concerned about my health and about the impact of those waves from uh, from working basically within a cell tower. And if anyone knows anybody or knows what that is or what I'm looking for and would like to help me, I'd like like that help. I would like to know exactly how much uh, of the juice is is just raining down upon me from the machinery on the roof. So this has now gotten bigger than the stereo, and now I'm worried about my brain. 
I'm worried about the impact that the waves are having on my brain. Is it frying my brain? Is it enlightening me? Is it causing me badness? I'd like to spend time in my office, but uh, but AT&T is not enabling that. They've said they'll send a technician over again. This would be the third or fourth time to figure something out. But uh, you know how that goes with these corporations. Oh, we got to placate this guy again. Send someone over. We need the tower off of the building. I don't believe it's safe. There's got to be other options. So please, if a wave assessor could make himself present, can make himself known, that would be appreciated. If, if there are any wave assessors out there with a wave assessing machine, I would, uh, I, w- I, would, I would appreciate that. So this is important. We're going to revisit the patent troll situation because it is still happening. And everybody who podcasts, everybody who appreciates podcasting, and everybody who appreciates, I guess, the entrepreneurial spirit of progress in general should know about these fucking patent trolls because like, look, the podcast patent stuff has gone quiet a bit, but that doesn't mean obviously that it went away completely. The organization that took up the fight on the legal front for us is the electronic frontier foundation, the EFF. And I asked Daniel Nazer, a staff attorney for the EFF to stop by and tell me what's going on, including how the case is going against the podcast patent troll and that's what you're going to hear right now daniel nazer right daniel nazer that's, that's right the way you pronounce the last name yeah uh, we have been uh in contact for a few years yeah since the patent troll situation yep uh the eff let, let's elevate people's awareness of what the EFF is before we get up to speed on what doesn't seem like closure to me. <laughs> yeah. So we're a nonprofit. We've been around for 25 years now. We got 30,000 members and we have an office in San Francisco with a bunch of lawyers, a bunch of technologists and a bunch of activists. Yeah. And we fight for civil liberties and innovation online. And part of that, part of that mission, uh, particularly my mission, is to fight the patent trolls. Well, you guys, uh, you know, came to the rescue of podcasters because it was a good thing for you guys to do. Yeah. It was a practical, winnable situation in a way. That's exactly right. And it had a public face. It wasn't complicated. It was like, these guys are trying to shake down these little guys. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, we love podcasting. You know, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's a thing. Often we're, on, we're guests on podcasts about technology. Mm-hmm. A lot of fans of your show in the office. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. And, and, uh, nice to know. <laughs> yeah. And it was very, it was very relatable. It was some guys who'd been sending cassettes in the mail back in the day, and they'd that had a very vague idea about content on on the internet. Well, let's go through that. So, because I don't always understand, like a lot of the listeners, they, they helped out, they they got some money to you guys, and you guys put this case together to uh, to to uh, destroy the the, the patent that was the being used by the patent troll to uh, claim that the technology for podcasting pre-existed podcasting and this guy 
had designed it. Yeah. It was never made into a machine. It was never executed. Yeah. But it was a, a a cassette delivery device on a timely basis. Yeah. I mean, and these guys did try and make like a kind of a, a precursor to the iPod, but they never got any traction with it. But, uh-huh. but what the patent was, was an idea for sort of ordered content on online. And it was, it was very vague. It was basically a table of contents on the internet. And with with the links going to media files and the problem was from our perspective is that even in 1996 which yeah. is a long time ago in internet land yeah even then that was not new even then people had been doing had been doing that and that that's what we told the patent office but i know that the people that have been listening to this show for a while know that we were all well five of us or six of us were pretty terrified enough at the at this being a real thing yeah. a lot of other podcasters are like no, i don't know it doesn't seem real to me but this was a very real thing that that they could have shaken us down for a lot of money. Then they could have licensed podcasters. They could have asked every podcaster for a percentage of, of money relative to their patent. They could have asked for a fee, uh, a weekly, monthly, daily, yearly, whatever from podcasters and be legitimized in doing that because of the support from the patent office. Correct? Yeah, that's right. And and you were you were right to be concerned. I mean, they they did sue Adam Carolla and they they dragged him down to the Eastern District of Texas and and he had to fight the lawsuit down there and that that's no picnic. And then they wrote like they they let it. I, I think they didn't anticipate how loud we would all be. Yeah. <laughs> And the uh, the uh, front operation, personal audio, or the office, the empty office with a phone in it in East Texas. Yeah, you know, it didn't even have a phone. At one point, uh, it came out in Discovery that it was literally a mailbox forwarding address that they had down there that they were claiming was their office in Texas. No shit. Yeah. Really? Uh, yeah. That's fucking disturbing to me. So what happened was, is we got you some money. You decided to take it on as a, as part of, I, I you know, it, you're a non-for-profit, so you yeah. weren't representing us. That's right. That was always made very clear to me <laughs> when I was, you know, calling in a panic, <laughs> Julie, sort of like I would call her up and be like, what do we fucking do? She's like, well, I need you to know that I'm not your lawyer. Yeah. I cannot represent you. We, we cover LRs. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but ultimately you realize that it was a, it was a good case. Yeah. And what you did was you got some money through donations and you did, you have a, a bunch of lawyers that work pro bono in yep. a, some sort of a Harvard think tank or something. <laughs> yeah. We, we, so we did a lot of the work ourselves. It's me and a, a colleague, another colleague called Vera Ranieri, uh, did a ton of work on, on this petition ourselves. And we also had a law firm help us pro bono. So this guy's patent was from 1996. Yeah. And he just decides, like, I can make some money on this. Yeah. So he sort of backloads it into yeah. podcasting. Yeah. And the language is vague enough and broad enough and, and dense enough for it to seem like it covers everything. So there, it's a big net, these patents. You know, in our view that this is a, this is a patent where uh, that there is a big problem with these really broad patents that the people that are getting them didn't genuinely contribute to the technology. That, that the technology that grew and podcasting came out of that, that would have happened exactly the same way if these guys had never done anything. And, that, and that's what you have to prove with the uh, review process. Yeah, with the review process, we had to find stuff from way back in the early 90s, mid 90s, and and show it to the patent office. So we had like an MIT thesis that we like found in the MIT library. And, and this is what you call prior art. Yeah. So in order to invalidate a patent, you have to find prior art that will prove even one of the uh, parts of the patent. That's right. And then the whole thing comes unraveled. Yeah, yeah. And we challenged it specific the specific claims of the patent that they were asserting against you guys, which were the, that went to the server rather than the device. And, 
And so we went uh, and we found the, these things. One of them was called the Geek of the Week. Yeah. And it was a dude uh, who's actually uh, sort of a longtime supporter of EFF who was interviewing technologists on the internet and putting it up there in the in 94. Right. Nice. Uh, yeah. Did you guys like get a high five of each other when you found that in the <laughs> yeah. office? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking for prior art is kind of fun. It's it's a it's a treasure hunt. Now, patent trolls is a a pervasive problem within tech in, within the tech world. Yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah, that if one of these guys and a lot of them are not individual inventors, they're 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 companies that literally buy up patents. And then just go through them to see what how they can do this. So you write a continuation, which is you rewrite the patent to a mm -hmm. certain degree, and then you refile it, and then you go out and sue. Yeah. Technology that it kind of applies to. Yeah. That's a business. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And now this guy, Dave Logan, from Personal Audio, from my understanding, was not in that business. This was a guy that actually owned yeah. that patent. Yeah, yeah. He things. was one of the named inventors from back in the day. But he was partnered with one of these. Yeah, you know, it's it all it, pretty much anyone suing in Eastern District of Texas. You really have to kind of raise one eyebrow at him about how genuine the the the, the deal is. So that's the, where the most the abusive litigation happens. Right, and and I think uh, this American Life covered it. So that what is it with this Eastern District of, of Texas? That how does the judiciary arm of this state? become this sympathetic without you know coming under investigation themselves <laughs> it's it's been a, it's a strange story it's it's the it's a federal court it's it's located in Marshall Texas it's a pretty sleepy town and over the years they've had some rules that are pretty plaintiff friendly yeah they support the the people bringing the suits and it's become more and more people go there and and becomes a bigger thing and it starts to actually support the local economy there's like printers hotels oh. and it's 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 a big th it's just this huge thing down so there so patent trolls from around the world come there and they can do their paperwork there yeah when they show up for their court case if there's a problem and they need to run off some stuff <laughs> there's a new copy place yeah. down the street and there's a hotel that's got all the technology you need to make sure your documents are in yeah. order yeah yeah there's a big there's it's 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 a pretty big deal down there and it it is unfortunate because i don't think it's really fair it's not it doesn't make any sense for Adam Carolla to be dragged out there to be sued to be sued by a guy who actually lives in the Northeast and has just you know incorporated a, a well, shell company. What, yeah, that's right, a shell company. The thing is, like, thank God Adam went down there. But like, you know, in order, and that's the other thing that that people really need to know is that these patent trolls bankrupt businesses. Yeah, and and the 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 problem, the reason why they get traction is that for me or Adam or any of us to defend ourselves in a case like this. It would, we would not have the money. Yeah. And they would bleed us. And then we would lose by default. Yeah. So you guys stepping in was very helpful to the medium and helpful to, you know, us personally. But I mean, it, this is a predatory business and Adam couldn't even follow through. Yeah. I mean, Adam, you know, put a big bank together and they, they dismissed it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Isn't that what happened? Yeah. So Adam, you know, Adam really stood up. He did, he did a really good thing. He fought hard down there and he, he crowdfunded some money himself and right. puts, paid a bunch of money out of his own pocket, as I understand it. Um, and eventually they gave up. They realized that he was going to keep fighting and and I, I think I, I think he would have played pretty well in front of a jury down there. I think he was going to be a much more sympathetic defendant than right. the TV companies they've been suing. Right. And uh, eventually they gave up. And you know, between us and Adam, and just generally the community, like really stood up to them. And I think well, right. that, that's did, what did it. But, but what about the other ones? Like, yeah. did, have you been in touch with? Uh, I know they saw they did some podcasts with Deeper Pockets. Yeah. And there was some. Uh, the uh, some other shows, CBS, uh, CBS shows that mm -hmm. they went after. What happened in those cases? Yeah, well, they actually went to trial in Texas and they won. 
Who did? Uh, the personal audio. What? Uh, yeah, yeah. And before we did. So these things, they, they, they go on parallel tracks. And Adam got out, and then they went to trial against CBS. And they won in front of a Texas, in front of a jury there in, in Marshall. Uh-huh. And uh, and that was that was going to go up on appeal. And while that ha- was waiting, we won our case at the patent office. And so we knocked out the patent. And now that everything in Texas is now stayed. It's all just on hold. And while our appeal happens, because we've essentially killed the patent, we've essentially oh, killed so they won. And they, but that's what they're sort of banking on. If you if no one had filed that the the what do you call it the interparties review? review yeah the review then they would have just gone and made their money yeah and then they would have had a, pre- a precedent set and once that precedent was set they could go after any of us yeah and it would yeah. be very hard for any of us to fight it yeah that would I mean, in any court yeah once you know it, it does get tougher you do get your own day in court but it's uh, even if they've won against someone else but it's so expensive i mean you know a bit about what adam carolla went through but taking a taking one of these cases to trial is a million dollar enterprise. Okay, so now two questions. Um, one is, how is the patent uh, office so vulnerable? Yeah, you know, I'm, I, I think, uh, have you ever you ever walked down like Venice Beach and you see all like the pot doctors down there? Yeah. And like you pay money, you go in and like there's, it's like, you know, to say the right thing, you get a, you get a card, you know? Yeah. And it, it's, unfortunately, it's kind of that model. It's like that you pay a fee and you know what to say and, and they issue patents. Um, it's, and they don't have enough time to like really look um, at everything. Like we, let me tell you a, a story about uh, one of our most recent cases. We're representing this couple that live in suburbs of Philly, and they run a website where these um, they have a vote for your favorite photograph. Yeah, and they've been doing this since vote for your favorite photograph. Yeah, just generally, just yeah. it's, it's just a fun site. Yeah, yeah, they just do it as a yeah. hobby. They're not even a com- company. They're not incorporated. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've been doing this since 2003, and then they get sued in federal court by this these guys that own a patent on voting for your favorite photo, and a patent that they got in 2007 um, on like vote for your favorite thing on the internet. Yeah, and as if that was a new thing in 2007, and you just you just bang your head against the table. Like, how on earth is the patent office giving patents like that out? This was something like you remember hot or not, and like this is not something that was new. It was probably not something that should ever have been patentable. It's just a banal idea. Yeah. And and they're handing this patent out in, in the late two thousands, and it you know just it has because real somebody impacts. did the paperwork. Yeah, I mean they they get half a million applications a year, mm-hmm. so they're just overwhelmed, and they don't they don't really look. They look at other patents and and journal articles when they're looking for prior art. What we were talking about earlier, and they just they don't really look on the internet. They don't really look at open source software, is, so they miss a lot of is, stuff. But is that a policy in order to keep the patent office you know vibrant and 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 uh, doing what it's supposed to be doing or is it really just overwhelmed it's 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 a mixture of both I, back when i was uh, in practice like we would do jury uh mock jury tr- uh, tests which had trial in front of mock jurors and they just love you hold something up and you say the patent office looked at this a professional reviewed yeah. this and that's true and it's very hard to get them to realize that it's a flawed process and the analogy i used to like to use was like if someone holds up a driver's license is that does that convince you that they're a good driver? Right. That, like they weren't yeah. at fault? Right. Like, and that's one of those things where, they, see, like the, these lawyers that represent these these trolling companies, you know, they know the score. So if you try to make an example of the process of the patent office, it's not really even admissible. That's exactly right. So, so it's a game. 
Yeah. It's like, you know, like, hey, you know, we're not here. The patent office isn't on trial. This yeah. is, you know, th- this is what they do, you yeah. know. Right. So now what's going on? Now, the reason you're here is you know, I'm concerned. Yep. So so you're telling me that Dave Logan and his office without a phone, his mailbox, <laughs> his mailbox uh, business yep. uh, in Texas has appealed. Yeah. Uh, the the patent uh, on podcast. Yeah, yeah, they appealed our our victory at the at the patent office, and it's at the federal circuit and the federal courts, and uh, we're probably going to be arguing it in July. So you think we have a good shot? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm confident, um, and I'm usually a pretty pessimistic guy. If you might remember, last time I was on, I yeah. <laughs> depressed you a little. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we're going to talk about a couple other things here with these stickers you brought me <laughs> that are not necessarily patent related, <laughs> but disconcerting. Yeah. The Electronic Frontier Foundation. These removable stickers are an unhackable anti-surveillance technology. Place them over your laptop camera to frustrate hostile adversaries. Are you telling me <laughs> that people are recording me on the occasion that I may be masturbating to <laughs> pornography? I, I I hope not, Mark. But it, it does happen. That that's a real thing. People people hack your your laptop and they they put some malware there and they get control of the camera and it's uh, it's actually a pretty major problem they'll they'll sell they hack a bunch of computers and then they like get access and then they'll sell that to creepy people who want access and it's a real for blackmail no no i mean i think a lot of it's just people who just want to watch me working yeah they want to watch me reading twitter yeah yeah people have there's a whole channel of me like (laughs) you know getting upset at tweets that's right that's right the doc web channel mark yeah yeah mad at tweets mark not working (laughs) mark looking at things that he shouldn't but uh so that well that's just creepy yeah not necessarily it's creepy that it exists but i don't know what they're really getting yeah 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 i think you know it's 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 if you got nothing better to do it's the kind of thing to do but uh but a sticker is a very easy way to defeat uh, thank you i'm gonna put one of these on right now you have one on your phone so Uh, you're a little cautious (laughs) yeah yeah that's right (laughs) what what other uh horrible things are happening uh in the hack world that, that can affect us you know, regular people. Yeah. Well, right now, I mean, the big battle uh, that's that's been in the news has been Apple versus the government about about the phone, during yeah. the phone, and and that has been followed up with a bill that uh, uh, Senators Feinstein and Burr have proposed in Congress that would essentially require companies to make their technology insecure, so that just in case the government needs to look, they can. And we're super concerned about that because our philosophy is this is already the golden age of surveillance. The government has tons and tons of ways to look at it, what we're doing to spy on us yeah. uh, with or without a warrant. And the, 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 for them to make the phones less secure just in case they need to look at you know one particular phone is a really bad payoff that we have a much bigger problem with identity theft with yeah it's happened to uh, me the identity, identity theft whoa yeah so you would i mean that's a real thing that's happened to a lot of people our view is like there's always things that the government can't get like if you have a conversation inside your house with the curtains closed and it turns out it later would be relevant to yeah. to the government like they can't get that it's like that but you could bug everyone's house 
house and send it to a server and the government say, well, we'll only look if we have a warrant. Right. And and then, you know, but that would solve the going dark problem, which is what they call it, the going dark problem of people's private conversations right. in the house. But we don't we don't do that because like we value privacy and, and the government doesn't get everything right. They 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 have plenty of tools. They have yeah. they have location, they have Just good police work. Yeah, good police work. Like focus specifically on targets rather than mass surveillance. That's the kind of message we push that 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 really what we want the government to be doing is to be focusing on on targets where they have real evidence and rather than just sweeping up everyone's internet browsing, everyone's phone records, which they were doing for years and years. Um, so that, you know, we have a government that's focused on actual problem people rather than treating everyone like a suspect. Well, God damn it. Are we being reco- are we being surveilled right now? <laughs> we are we are being recorded right now. Mark. God, man, we got to take care of this shit. That's crazy. They can hear us right now. Thanks for talking to me, man. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on. That was me and Daniel Nazer, and you know, thank God, up to speed. Now, look, folks, I I do need to say that the EFF took this fight on when podcasters needed it the most, and we're always going to be thankful for that. WTF is making a donation to them right now to help keep them going throughout the year, and we want to sweeten the pot, folks. If our listeners also make donations to the EFF, we will match every dollar you donate up to $5,000 in addition to our original donation. They set up a page for you to do this. Go to EFF.org slash WTF. That's EFF.org slash WTF. You can also find out when you go to EFF.org uh, uh, what else they're up to and why it's an important organization. So let's give a little back to the defenders of podcasting. Okay? All right. I'm going to talk to George Wolf. More theater stuff. Very excited about the theater. Very excited about uh, the musical Shuffle Along or the making of the musical sensation of 1921 and all that followed... Uh, which is playing on Broadway at the Music Box Theater. I learned a lot. I I, I definitely uh, was engaged. I knew nothing about it. Not unlike Hamilton in some ways. There's a history lesson, but the, the difference is that Hamilton was American history, founding father history. Shuffle Along was really theater history, uh, Black entertainment history, entertainment history, the history of dance, musical innovation, of show business. And and it, it was just a fascinating lesson that went all the way through. This was a forgotten play that was a monumental event. It was the first all-black production uh, on Broadway, which turned out to be kind of close to Broadway, not quite on Broadway, but it was it was uh, just went gangbusters. It was a huge success in 1921. And then everybody in it, and except for UB Blake, well, everyone went on to other things, but the impact of it became forgotten for a lot of different historical reasons. It was a great show. Great show. And, uh, and you know me and musicals. I found it very moving, and I was very honored to have this conversation uh, with George C. Wolfe uh, in my hotel room in New York City. The play is also nominated for 10 Tony Awards, including two for George, Best Book of a Musical and Best Direction of a Musical. So this is me talking to uh, George C. Wolf uh, in New York City. (music) 
so the reason I'm nervous is I always feel a little insecure about theater, about my knowledge of theater and what theater means and what it's supposed to be and how important it is, all that shit. Oh, who cares? <laughs> it's theater. Good. You do it. You do it. You do it. Hopefully it's good. Hopefully people are engaged. Hopefully people take something home. That's what you do. It's but but the like when you started uh, getting involved with theater, what was the passion? Because it, I know it's a broad question, but it, it seems like a a hard life in terms of you know people's attraction to it at this point in time. It's it's not. It seems like it's New York. That's it. With theater, I, no, 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 you no, won't take no, that. No, I don't take that. No, I don't, no. I mean, no. It's, I mean, it's, it's everything's. I mean, it's like theater almost died when the talkies came along, right. and then theater almost died when TV came along, and then theater almost died because of new technology. Right. And probably maybe one day it will die, but it's not dead yet. And and <laughs> and also Broadway is not theater. Broadway, it's Broadway. Is, is Broadway is Broadway, and where and theater is done on Broadway. Mm-hmm. But Broadway is about a whole bunch of stuff. Broadway is about real estate. Broadway is about awards. Broadway is about ticket prices. Broadway is about glamour. And it's also about people, a, a lot of people who work very, very, very hard to do what they do. And that's sort of what connects theater all over the world. It's, it's the, one of the things that I think, I mean, originally, originally, I wanted to be like Walt Disney. I was going to have an amusement park. And so when that I was, was the plan, that was the plan. I was going to have an amusement park and when I was you, eight or nine. Did it you was, picture the rides that you might I, have? No, I, I have. I still have the plans. <laughs> I still have the plans. I drew up the plans. And were there different lands like in it? Without question. Oh my god. Yes, I'd I like still to have them. One name of one land in I've, George Wolf's amusement park. It's called uh I'm surviving in New York land. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. And, I, and I'm stuck on that ride. Yeah. Um and so and so and so I was and so I knew that I needed a lot of money and so yeah. I'd watch TV and I'd watch, you know, the Dick Van Dyke show or the or or that girl, any of those shows. I know that when you came to New York, if you made if you act if you were an actor, you made a lot of money. So I yeah. knew I need to come to New York and struggle so I could make a lot of money so I could then have my amusement park. You knew all that. This was my thinking to when be I was an actor. Nine, to be an actor so I could get money so I could build my amusement sure. park. Sure. So And you have. I just I saw one of the rides. I went <laughs> to the ride last probably, night. Yeah. This is and it's probably at the end of the week. And people who were in it would probably agree to you it that a it's ride. a ride. It was it's a good, good ride. ride. So it's um so that was that. But then I, you know what I think that you know, because you know, my first play color museum was done in eighty six and I was been working and I sort of got out of college ten years earlier. Yeah. Where and and I suppose probably started in when I was twelve, thirteen. I, I I is sort of for lack of better words, the obsession began. But with over time with theater. But over time, you know, all the various reasons why you want to do it, like you know, to have an impact in the world or to to have a voice or do all that stuff that's really, really important is ultimately at the end of the day the thing that I love most about it is it it creates this extraordinary when it works really well it creates this extraordinary sense of community a whole bunch of people who have nothing in common except for they maybe they're interested or they're ambitious or right. they want to get hired or whatever come together in the room and if you can craft the right kind of environment this astonishing community can grow and that's the community that goes extends to the backstage in front of the house, the back it, of the house. It, it, it keeps on growing like yeah. first you first you add in designers then you right. add then a producer designers then you add in actors and that's sort of the core because they're they're the people who are going to be with you on the journey and then it adds into everybody backstage and it keeps on growing and growing and yeah. and it's and it's a and and at the end of the day, that's sort of the 
that's the thing that I keep returning to that I that I love in a very intimate way about the making of theater. You you form these sort of contrived circumstances but authentic bonds with people and that that includes the writer and then at some point the producer there's a, every, a every, actually everybody everybody yeah. you know and, and you know and there's dysfunction as, as it is exists inside of every really community. within actors in theater and, and oh uh, I, I know it's shocking you know and you know <laughs> actors in the eagles for 100 alex you know so it's just no but it's i'm you know in this show i'm blessed with it. I, I, but also i have really I tend to have really, really, really good close relationships with actors because I love them and I love working with them. And I think they're... And you've worked with great actors. I worked with some astonishing actors. I mean, you've worked with the best in the world. I would say that, yes. Yes, I would say that absolutely. And when you, like, what I sort of want to do is, you know, why I have the show fresh in my head because I, you know, I saw Shuffle Along. Is there there a longer title or the making of the musical sensation of 1921 and all that followed? Yes, ta-da. This struck me as the decision to take that review, to take Shuffle Along, and sort of, you know, contextualize the entire history of, of black entertainment through it, and, and with all of the, and also the, this sort of very real idea of things fading, of taking the, mef- the metaphor of Shuffle Along to actually mean shuffling off this mortal coil. Exactly, exactly. To reinterpret the exactly, idea. Exactly, and, and that's the arc of the show. Yeah, exactly. Was, you know, it was genius. Oh, uh, thank you. Number one. And you know, number two, I learned a lot. But there was also this idea of the the shifting, the, of how art works. Yes. Of how art grows. Yes. And where it starts. And, and in, the, in the world of black entertainment, that shift from, you know, where there was literally a shame for the type of show yeah. that, that that Shuffle Along was... You know, within years of it of it going on, yes, and exactly. so they were not only just forgotten, but but consciously erased. Exactly, exactly. After doing something that was culturally and monumentally significant, and what what made you like dig that up? What made you say like this is going to be a big Broadway musical where you know we're going to show all of this historically. We're we're going to educate. We're going to create new music and new dances, and and have the theme be this this show to to be the foundation of another show about about black history in a way. Well, I mean, God, thank God I didn't think that way because otherwise I but, never, I never would have gone into the room. But am it I wrong? Just, no, but I'm, but I'm saying, but, but, but when you start something, you have no idea course, what it is. Of course. So, I mean, because if it was, if I thought I was going to do all of that, I never would have walked through the little door, <laughs> you know, because there's a little door. There's a very tiny door. I think when you agree to a project, the door is very, very tiny and you walk inside and you go, oh, yeah. this is just going to be easy and simple and a breeze and then you get inside and then the journey takes you where it wants, wants well, to take What was the fascination it. with Shuffle well, I w- well, it, it sort of happened incrementally. When I was in college, I developed this incredibly intense, huge obsession with, with Paul Robeson. And I found like that he had been a replacement in Shuffle Along. Then at one point I learned about Florence Mills, who was this international star, American star, and a black woman, which was at sort of an impossibility to imagine throughout the 20s where everybody worshipped her all over. Internationally. In, in, internationally. She was yeah. a huge star. Everywhere she went, people were going, this is great artist. My, my guess is she was probably P.F. meets Billie Holiday meets Judy Garland right. in some right. and, and, and tiny and there's literally no recording of her voice. Really? Is, yeah. Just like Buddy Bolton. Right. There's no recording of this man who is considered so I'm just fascinated by these people who Buddy Bolton pre-Louis Armstrong. Who's considered sort of the link between secular music and jazz. Yeah. He's considered this crucial, crucial bone, if you will. Right. Michael Andachi wrote a 
book of poetry. Yeah, it's wonderful. Coming through slaughter. Coming through slaughter, which I read at a crucial time in my life. Right, right. Yes, yes, yes. Um, And so... and, and and so and and then and then Josephine Baker and then I read that Langston Hughes went to Columbia University because of it and then you know George G Nathan who hated everything. So or, you're running through your whole intellectual life. This didn't, just didn't happen a year ago. No, absolutely, absolutely. And I, so I keep on finding all these people, who all these people uptown and downtown, black and white, low brown, high brow, who formed this incredibly intense connection with this show. Yeah. And I was going, that's fascinating. That doesn't happen often because generally there are people who, if something is successful, they dismiss it because it's successful. Right. Sure. You know, and there yeah. were all these people who, 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 who were attached to it. And then uh, in Gilbert Selda's book, The Seven Lively Arts, he, he described, he used this phrase called a joyous rage, mm-hmm. which was, which I thought was just the most brilliant phrase um, ever, yeah, yeah. you know, and I think that's sort of been an emblematic energy that's informed Shuffle Along. So I, so I became really sort of interested and obsessed about it. Then Scott Rude and I were talking about because he wanted me to do something. And I went, oh, I've been thinking about this show Shuffle Along and I'd, I worked with, I hadn't worked with Savion Glover for about 10 years. And then I read this fact that it was the first time that a women's chorus were not were not decorative, that they danced and they had, were an active energy. And I went, oh, this show was significant in terms of the evolution of the American musical. So I want to know more. And then I started digging, digging. And then I started to find out about the people and the artists who made it. And they were extraordinarily fascinating to me. And so I've, I always find it really fascinating when really, really smart, complicated people create something that is less complicated than they are. Uh-huh. That tension is really fascinating to me because then you can look inside and realize there's something else more complicated going on inside of it. Right, and, and a lot of us don't explore that deeply because what you're saying is, because that happens in a lot of mainstream entertainment. 100%. There's a lot of frustrated, smart people going like, yeah, I lost control. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> or, or or you put that many people in together in one room, it's bound to not work. Exactly. You know what I mean? So I was so I became really, really fascinated by what happens when, because when you work on a show, wherever you are at that moment in your life, everything you have gets poured into it. Right. And so, and these people put together something that should not have worked and then worked and then was transformational. And I read this really fascinating essay that, that because Shuffle Along was literally the first black musical to become commercially successful, every work that followed in many respects, the tendency was to place it in the South because of Shuffle Along's success. And and everything, I mean, everything that followed that has any degree of black people in it is set in the South, in the commercial landscape. Right. I think there are variations on that. And, and I think that also, like, when you know, when you talk about uh, stealing or appropriation or, uh, you, you know, white culture taking from black culture, that, I mean, you went out of your way <laughs> to, to, to make it clear that Gershwin took... The opening notes of uh, I've Got Rhythm from the orchestra. I did not. I went with UB Blake. This is not me. UB Blake tells this brilliant story. That thank God he lived long enough to tell those stories. Oh my, forever. He, he I remember him from my childhood. Yeah, of course. Oh my yeah. God, exactly. Yeah. You know, U.B. Blake tells this extraordinary story because William Grant Steele, who went out to have wrote, who wrote the theme song for the 1939 World's Fair and wrote all these operas. He's an extraordinary composer. Played actually the oboe, not the clarinet. Uh-huh. <laughs> I tried. I went through hell trying to find a, a jazz oboist to be in the pit. It was not. We <laughs> couldn't find one. You couldn't uh, find one. We could not find one. Not could even not, someone good at faking. Yeah, I don't know. We ain't faking. 
making it. Yeah. So um, tells this story that that uh, that George Gershwin came to see the show repeatedly. There's this man named Will Voteray who did the vocal arrangements for this show. Was later hired by Ziegfeld to do the vocal arrangements for a lot of his shows at the Ziegfeld Falls, and also did the vocal arrangements for. Uh, showboat and was at one time was the musical director for Fox Films for about four years in Hollywood uh-huh. from 1929 to 32 which is a sort of astonishing thing uh, but but he would invite all these people over because he wanted to for lack of better words pick their brains and so uh, UB tells a story that he bumps into Dooley Wilson the guy from Casablanca and yeah. he went wait till you hear this new song that George Gershwin has written. It's unbelievable. And Dooley Wilson sat down with the sheet music and started to play the song, and U.B. Blake said, stop. He got up, U.B. Blake sat down and played the rest of the tune. Really? And he's went, this is U.B.'s story, and you and he go, how do you know that? He said, Gersh, he said, Grant Steele used to riff on that tune when he was in the pit of Shuffle Along. And that story, so it's not my invention. No, no, I know. But yeah. it's the, and that story I just thought was astonishing. Sure, but not you, surprising. Well, you know, hey, it's just like, you know, that's, that's a fascinating quote, you know, you know, town to people borrow geniuses still. You know, Gersh was a genius, but it's just fascinating because at that time, because one of the things that I thought, think was really, 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 really fascinating about Shuffle Along, which is up to this show, Langston Hughes considered it a catalyst for the Harlem Renaissance, not for the brilliance of the artists who gave forth, but this mix and mingling. The portal. Yeah, the portal, exactly. This uptown yeah. and downtown meeting and connecting. Right. You know, downtown and Harlem meeting and connecting. And so it was this, it was this explosive time where where people and and the and this downtown elite white culture and uptown you know elite you know populist culture were connecting for the first time and of course when that sort of stuff happens there's an incredibly there's an incredible uh sort of like exchange of energy idea and possibility and i'm sure and and in some cases it's very organic versus you know the situation where you have big mama thornton versus elvis presley they right. nothing but a hound dog right you know all that stuff is later but this was sort of in many respects i think sort of a a a a uh a, a a a very embryonic extraordinary moment in manhattan when the two worlds were meeting and connecting and also this show is about like as you were saying before about about the nature of broadway the nature of business and that has been roughly the same for years is that like when you pointed out at the beginning of this conversation that broadway's not about theater it's about broadway and it's sort of what's happening now oddly in times square although when i lived here we were all very upset that the that that it was now becoming this uh, this light show. No, but that was what it was originally. No, exactly. What that, what that, what, no, that be, Broadway is theater, but Broadway is. I mean, it's, it's like Hollywood is movies, but Hollywood is also a lot of other things. Right. So I don't, and also because because I don't want to in any way because I've worked on Broadway, you know, for you know for probably since since I was probably thirty six or thirty seven. So I love working there. It's just it's a lot. It's it's people making the work, and then it's lights, and then it's people coming there to be a part of this glamorous thing. And generally, the making of the thing is the most unglamorous thing but, but, because it's just wonderful hard work. Right, and it's big shows. And it's always been, you know, for every Long Day's Journey into Night or for every Angels in America, there's been a Cats yeah, and there's been a and I think and I, a and Lion I think King. exactly, and I think that the collision of all those dynamics are what make it interesting when it just becomes one 
over the other, then it becomes complicated. And I think the economics are making it very complicated. But I remember once I, I did this, I did this stunning, stunning play called Free Men of Color by John Gore at Lincoln Center. And it was and it was weirdly received. And it's 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 a masterpiece. And I was like, I, that's it. I'm done with Broadway. I'm over it. I'm over it. I'm quitting. And then somebody had called me in for the, you know, to, to, to help out and transform this production of of uh the normal heart larry kramer's astonishing play mm. and it ended up having this extraordinary impact and people were there sobbing nightly and people who had gone through the aids crisis who had lost friends were releasing energy that they couldn't release at the time because you you, you became numb after so many of your friends dying and a whole new generation was there and larry and, and larry was outside handing out pamphlets about the war is still on and all of a sudden i went from going oh i'm sad i'm cynical i'm walking away all of a sudden i was inside of this experience which was transformational, and people were going, "Thank you, I love it." So, so Broadway can surprise you, it and can, that's and that's also the power of theater. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. That just and and but also the power of theater, just in terms of transforming people, but also transformed me in the middle of you know standing, your cynicism, singing, yeah, my cynicism, and and standing on the corner singing "Stormy Weather," can't go on, <laughs> you know, and you know, and I, that's it, I'm done, I'm yeah, over it, and right. then all of a sudden, oh my God, I love Broadway, right. you know. So it's just that so you go through it, and that's one of the. Actually, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to to do Shuffle Along because I wanted to live inside of that stupid naivete that I had when I first came to the city. And also, which is, I want to make something, and I want to I want to be a, I want to be a working theater artist. I want to have a Broadway show. I want to have that career. Then that's that's what you're thinking going into this. That's exa- I, I wanted but to it, revisit that. But it's George. interesting that you know where you know you have that juncture uh, of art and and your own personal life where you know you became cynical with Broadway, and and at the moment I imagine you saw the response of of, of Normal Heart. That was the moment where you realize that there's a selflessness that is necessary to service what theater is capable of. Well, yeah, it, it's, but that's also I just think it's just it's like every single time you do a play, you fall in love, right? And you want the world to love who you love, right? And then when the world doesn't love who you love the way you wanted them to, it hurts. Yeah, it hurts your heart. I, I I have never lost, and I, God willing, knock on wood, will never lose the joy of the making. Right. Because I love to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love yeah, to yeah. make things, and I love to play with people in yeah. a room. Yeah, You know, and make something that is scary and dangerous and fun. I So I'm not going to let anything invade that. Right. So if we walk through your tenure at the, at the public, you, you know, where I guess most of this stuff started at the public and then moved? Is yes. that how it works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you go to go from Jelly's Last Jam to to working with Tony Kushner on Angels in America. That's a, a pretty big jump. No, right? not really. No, Tony asked me to do it because of Jelly's Last Jam, so it couldn't be that much of a jump. Well, no, t- tell me a little bit about Tony's process because, like, he to me is this uh, this uh, you know incredible genius that I you know like I see I've seen him on the street and I've been I, I had to stop just to look at him. Like that's him. That's the guy that. Writes <laughs> oh, that's <them>. funny. <laughs> Uh, because he's a real poet and he, and he runs very deep and operates on a lot of levels. How was that collaboration? How, how did that work with you guys? It was great. Yeah. I mean, he's one. He's a dear, dear friend of mine. And I mean, it it was it, it was a very joyful collaboration with that thing, which is ironic enough. I was at the I was at NYU. 
I went to NYU in the dramatic writing program and also musical theater program, and he was there as a director. Uh huh. So and you ended up directing. I ended, ended up directing Asians in America, and you know, and at the end time, I was put on the wait list at NYU as a director, which I periodically <laughs> remind them of this fact. But you know, it was it it, it was it was a it was a wonderful game because we, we've worked together on then Carolina Change and and various, and various other projects. So it's it, it's a joyful collaboration. So. I think what we have in common is the sense that theater sh- should has a responsibility that 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 theater that theater should should empower that theater should question that theater should assault that that theater should be entertaining that theater should be aggressive and delicate so I think I think we share that I think we have incredible intense respect and I think love of each other and I think that um that there was a tremendous part one had appeared to great acclaim and part one to part two was very much so in process and 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 I'm and I am very ferocious and very protective of the work. Yeah. I am very ferocious and very protective of actors and artists who I work with and, and space must be given so that the work can happen. Part two, the Perestroika was being ri- written. And I said, you just go, go away and do that. Do that. You can do that. We will protect you. I will protect you. And, and, and not from anybody being vicious, but just the expectations were so high. So one of the things which I always say, I, I never... I, I was never able to experience the thrill that people experienced when they saw angels, but I was able to hear new words and new speeches from from that show that and I heard them first and yeah, I would yeah. go oh that's clear that's not clear what about this what about this so so it was it was it, it's a lovely it was a lovely collaboration so yeah and it's a it's such a a profound and and you know dark and em- embracing play. I mean, like, you know, like, I guess there's no way to explain to me or, or to anybody, you know, where someone like Tony Kushner gets inspired to to use Roy Cohn as a centerpiece yeah, yeah, of yeah. a play about AIDS. Yeah. And then when I saw Caroline, uh, you know, that was not unlike Shuffle Long, framed in a context that everybody could understand. Yeah. But having a depth that that was, you know, transcends the exactly, form exactly, in a way. Exactly. 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 But but that's I mean I think that's that's the thing which I think is interesting about the it's like in a play. Yeah. It takes depending on the quality of the play, it takes three minutes, three to five to maybe 10 minutes to build trust with an audience. Yeah. In a musical, you can build trust with three notes because everybody surrenders to rhythm and music. Uh Now, now what I've always been intrigued, why the form intrigues me, but it's incredibly hard. And so this is the first musical I've done in 10 years. I'm maybe even because noise funk was 20 years ago because it, the form is so hard that what makes it hard. Just because of the undertaking with the well, know, because the it's, score it's it's it, no, because it's it's twenty seven thousand. It's you know, there's a book writer, there's a lyricist, there's a composer. What there's is a, a book writer in a in a in a musical? Because you wrote the book for last night's show that yes. I saw for Shuffle Along. What is the book exactly? Well the, well, the book is the dialogue, but the book is more than the dialogue. The, the book is 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 crafting the libretto, the scenario, right? So that there were so so the architecture 
the so, so the architecture of the, of the piece is is primarily probably though not exclusively crafted by the book writer so 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 as a book writer it was my vision to include you know this story in relationship to this story in relationship to this story it's 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 and and you must do so with an extraordinary economy it's probably in some respects it has the intellectual rigor that 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 you have when you're writing a play right. but it also has the craft like economy of a screenplay right or as or as i or as simply because you have it has to be sparse so that therefore the images are so large right. and the other scenario or as i describe book writing is you know the book writer does all the floor play the foreplay right. and the composer and the lyricists get to have the orgasm yeah, yeah. You know, so and also with this book you were you had to struggle to integrate all the music of the original show add new music and and then re kind of deconstruct the show build a new show on top of it yes exactly. that is the backstory of the show and have that exist as a musical yeah and then create and then craft the scenario of and and then and the all that happens so it's so it's so i it's 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 a deeply unrewarding th- thing but but <laughs> yeah. deeply but i'm i i mean tr- i really love it because it's 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 hard and it's hard and you and you have to do it with extraordinary economy so you have to say so much with a finite amount well, of time and energy what's beautiful about the about the, the this new show is that yet at intermission in some ways you've told the whole story already yes and that the entire second act is is sort of you know bringing the dance numbers and the music up to current date yeah. and then sort of you know reflecting on the 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 rest of these people's lives. exactly exactly and also but and also as a result of it hopefully when you look back on one you, you act one it, it your, your perceptions change because act one to me is about is about doing what you do no matter what because of the love of the doing right and act two is about this incredibly primal thing that everybody begins to think about when they get past forty. Will I be remembered for the best of what I did, or at all, or at all, or at all? And the most there's this most astonishing thing happened on opening night. Noble Sissel's daughter, yeah, who I met, who was there, the, the, the their family was there, came up to me and she said, she said, my father, when he, I hope I'm going to get this right, but she said, my father, toward the end of his life, said, I'm not scared of dying. When I'm terrified, is no one will remember me, Ugh. and it's just. You know, and that's just sort of, and and the final one of the final numbers in the song, uh, one of the final songs is, they won't remember you. Yeah, they won't remember you. And he sings it. Yeah, and 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 the four of them singing in define the people are singing it at them. History is singing it at them, and the form of Carl Van Vechten. And but that but see the the thing that you did that you know that I realized you know after I saw it and and thinking about this conversation was that you 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 dug these people up. Yes. And and you gave them context, and you gave them their place in history, and their place in uh, American history and the history of theater. Yes, and and modern entertainment. Yes, yes, and I and yeah, and I and and because they deserve it, because they deserve it. We talk about Oklahoma, we talk about West Side Story, we talk about Showboat. Oklahoma is like reputed the first real music. It was a, a sophisticated musical where there's an integration of of of, of song and dance all contributing toward telling the story. Uh, uh-huh. Showboat is considered the first sort of adult, sophisticated mu- musical. Uh-huh, uh-huh. West Side Story was considered lifting the bar in terms of the sophistication of all the elements combined together. 
And as far as I'm concerned, Shuffle Along was crucial because it, if for no other reason, if you think about George M. Cohen and the squareness of his sense of rhythm versus by virtue of Shuffle Along bringing jazz, i.e. syncopation, altered the soundscape of of the American musical. But it, it, it is interesting that, you know, you were able to sort of put this into, you, you know, the, a source point for the, the shifting of Broadway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and this is like, uh, tell me how the economics of Broadway sort of works, because this is a, sort of a bold thing to do, what you did, right? To me- I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but you want it to be a mainstream show, and it, and it has. Yeah, I want it to be. Yes, yes yeah, 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 yeah. And it seems to be doing you know beautifully, right? Yes. People are very excited about it. Yes, we are. We are. Yes, we are thrilled so far. Yeah. Now, when now, tell me about a little bit about the original Shuffle Along, and because like what I really liked in in your show was that there was this a lot of attention paid to to doing the work and doing it in a very compromised way and doing it on the road and doing it with, with, with little respect from, from producers and, and maybe no money, yeah. but there was this joy in doing it yes. and this horrendous process of getting that thing in shape. But hadn't they gone through all that by the time they got here, it wouldn't have been what it was. Exactly. Exactly. It was and so th- tight. Exactly. And also the thing, which is interesting, they opened up, they opened up in May, which in, in, in which no, which no show opens up in May because this was pre air conditioning and those buildings, you know, so there was, so it, it was swelteringly hot in those buildings and they came in and nobody knew what it was. And they were at a theater on 63rd street, which is, you know, which is far from 42nd Street. Right. And nobody nobody was famous. Nobody was connected to anybody in that show. And they were just scrapping together. And they came in $18,000 in debt, which is the equivalent of two hundred dollars or $300,000. So it was, so everything was com- conspired. Everything conspired to make this show a flop. Yeah. And it ended up running for 504 performances. There were three touring companies. And mixed it, audiences. It, totally, totally. It integrated Broadway because there was a heretofore rule that if black people came to Broadway, they would sit in the balcony. And so, and, and there was an article in Variety at the time which points out that Negroes that shuffle along were seated as close as fifth row from the front. Uh-huh. That's an article in Variety. And in that was shocking. Well, it's shocking and probably celebratory. This is happening. Yeah. And then what happened then when Shuffle Along was a big hit and it went on tour, it toured into white venues and therefore as it toured around, it, it inadvertently integrated every single theater it played in. That's an important uh, That's a, historical milestone. I mean, everything even so silly as in, uh, that 63rd Street in 1921 was a two-way street. But because the traffic was so heavy on 63rd Street, because so many people were going to see it, it became a one-way street. Uh, because of that? Because of Shuffle Along. And so when's the last time the show changed the traffic <laughs> patterns in New York City? I ask you that. So it's, to my mind... Film is about story. Yeah. TV is about character, and theater is about ideas. Yeah. You watch a story in the theater, but what you take home are these ideas. Hopefully, these ideas about America or these ideas. So people are watching brilliant artists and a very entertaining show. But hopefully, what you're taking home are are, are, are thoughts about American culture and how and how it how it transforms and devours and elevates all the time. And you're also taking home the idea of of the frailty 
of ambition and the frailty of success and the frailty of go of 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 waking up one day and figuring out it's not your time anymore. Right. So hopefully you take that home and you ingest it and allow it to live inside of your body. But you're watching the journey of the making of, or you're watching of will this will these two teams ever get back together? Right. But but also in a general sense that you're you're watching it unfold. You know, with spit and 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 100%. movement exactly. and, and the, yeah. there's no distance exactly. between you and the performers like. You know, I, I, one of the things that I think is so fascinating is when a movie is really having a tremendous impact on you. Yeah, you lean back in your seat. Yeah, when a play is really working, you lean forward in yeah. your seat because you're seeing something that is in the same proportion as you are. Yeah, you're seeing your own frailty on stage. Yeah, yeah, I, I I'm overwhelmed, and I don't go to a lot. And like I, you know, I've talked about it before. If I go see a musical. I'm usually tearing up just because there's so many people singing. Exactly. Well, because it has the power. It has that power. Yeah. yeah I just don't even know what, yeah. what that is. Yeah. yeah. And it happened last night a, a few times, but also what you're talking about, the depth of, of relating. Precisely. Precisely. And, 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 and the fascinating thing about, about Shuffle Long is that at the end, when you know, these characters are talking about their own deaths and their yeah. lives that led up to as they as they shuffle off the stage you know, before the, the final piece... Um, the the sadness is tempered by a a, a sort of you, you know respect and 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 what you've grown to embrace these people. Yeah, yes, like yes. It, it's a lot of them. It sounded hard and, and yeah. you know, it was vague enough to not be too tragic yeah. necessarily. Yeah, but uh, you were able to sort of accept it. Yeah, without being like, oh, this is yeah. horrible. What no, you? because yeah, and the, and the series of of years, and but also what the series of years. It's very interesting because because. I, I didn't even know what I was doing when I just wrote the list of years. I, mean, yeah. I did all the research and someone said, they said, oh, all of a sudden the piece became real for me because I was alive then. Right. When they were alive. Well, even me remembering UB Blake from when I was a oh, kid. Absolutely. And absolutely. he ends up the last guy on stage. Yes, and yes. he's sort of like, uh, he knows it. Yes. There's a tone. Yes. That's sort of uplifting and comedic. Yes, exactly. Uh, and and you, you're sort of like, well, that is life. Yes, exactly. You're, that guy's the lucky one. Exactly, exactly. He who lives longest <laughs> tells the story. That's right. Exactly. Well, yeah, I, I, thought it was, uh, I thought it was great. And it did all the things you said. And you were even able to bring... Uh, the elections into it in a, in in a, in a fairly uh, kind of uh, uh, you know eternal but 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 you know relevant way yeah that you know the sort of excitement around an election which the original shuffle along was sort of a substory exactly right? exactly exactly and also one of my favorite lines in in the piece which is uh, uh, which uh, Florida Miller Brian Stokes Mitchell says this line he says shuffle along celebrates that the most American of of freedoms, the right to vote for the wrong candidate. And, you know, and that's <laughs> right, exactly. And also, it's loaded up because you know the the context of of the black experience around voting. Exactly. That at that time, you know, was a dangerous event. Very dangerous. A very dangerous event. And that's what. And that's and that's one of the, his arguments that you know we were exploring substance in the context of this delightful little show. We were existing in defiance of the order of the day. And theater should exist in defiance of the order of the day. And, and what, in, in, I, 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 now I want to talk about, like, because, like, with Angels of America, again, that, that was one of those plays where y your staging of, of having, who was in the original, who was the original Roy Cohn? 
uh, Ron Liebman. Oh, yeah, that's who I saw. Brilliant, brilliant. Amazing. Brilliant. The whole but, cast, Marsha Gay Harden, Jeffrey oh, yeah. Wright, Kathleen Chalfant. Jeffrey Wright, oh, yeah. You know, it's just, you know, Stephen Spinella, Joe Mantel. I mean, just everybody, Ellen McLaughlin, everybody. It was the most astonishing, glorious, 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 glorious but, cast. But that staging of him in the bed, center stage, is what I remember. The, mm-hmm. that, and you had this, this monster yeah. that, you know, you're telling an audience to feel empathy for you know, to understand their own feelings about AIDS and about uh, yeah. uh, gayness in general and about yeah. fear was uh, was amazing. And like when you decide to do these moments where you're like, that bed's going to sit right there and, you know, and that's all you're that's all that's going to be on the stage. Wait, what was that thinking? Oh, God, that's 27,000 years ago. I, I don't know. know. I know it's, you know, it's just images. It's, it's very it's interesting. Just your, it's your craft. And, and we, you know, we, it's hard but to but also images, it's very interesting because at one point, there, at one, I, this is completely not not angels, but in, in in normal heart, it ends up. You know, normal heart ends up with. I have these two. I had these two images. I I I wanted to show the progression of what was happening with AIDS, and first time there were like twenty one names. Yeah, and then at the end of the act, the names are crawling, and at the end, I wanted to put names all over the theater, on people, on the entire scenery. And so I had that image, and I knew that image very, very early on. But there's one of the final scenes is, is, is the doctor marries the two main characters. And, and, when one, and when one is in bed and about ready to die. And I kept on avoiding... I mean, I, we, we, that cast was so heroic because we, we did that show in a finite amount of time. But I kept on going, they kept on going, okay, when do you want the bed? And I'm going, I don't want the bed. I'm going, but I don't know. And I kept on, I don't want to stage it. I kept on avoiding staging it. I kept on avoiding staging it. And I didn't quite know why. But, 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 but then I went, oh, I'm going to stage it with him standing and the and 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 his partner holding his hand behind his bed and he becomes the pillow because i wanted to magnify the fragility of the moment i i knew this but i didn't know this and so if you live inside if if you live inside the material a deeper part of your brain is seeing something and you just got to get out of the way so that therefore those images can come through. So the images, so the images from angels or the image from normal heart or the image, any of the images from Carolina change, I've got to, I've got to move my contrived brain out of the way so that, so that, so that these images that are living, that are coming from a deeper, more, more subliminal p- place and are coming from a primal place inside of myself can emerge. So in many respects, and, and as time goes on, I've gotten really, really good at not forcing myself to know something. Because if I don't know it yet, it's not because I don't know it. It's because something deeper and smarter within me is emerging. Right. And so I, don't, I take that pressure off of myself right. to, allow, to allow an image to reveal myself as opposed to making myself know something. Because if I make myself know something too soon, it's going to be a recycled image. It's going to be a recycled truth. Oh, I see. And I don't want to do that. Right. I don't want to do that. So that's... So, so as so as, as when I was speaking earlier about protecting artists, I'm also very protective of my own process as well. Right. So that therefore I don't back myself into a corner and demand something I know something sooner than I need to know it. 
That's interesting. And you, you don't know what the timeline is on, on Sometimes that. Sometimes you, you don't, exactly. You, you just hope it happens before you run out of time. And there's certain, exactly. And there's certain, <laughs> certain times, certain images, certain images I instantly knew. There was, working on, on Jelly's Last Jam, there was, I had this image very early on that that I wanted to explore this relationship between Jelly Roll Morton and his girlfriend, Anita, through a series of, 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 of post-sex yeah. conversations. And it became a, a number called Lovin' is a Low-Down Blues. And it was just very hot and very sexual and very raw yeah. and very intimate. And that image instantly came for me. And so there are times where I will get an instant image, and I know it's startling and fresh. And then there are other times I will go, you gonna show up? <laughs> you planning on showing up sometime today? Are you hello, hello. I'm knocking on the door. You're there. I'm being patient. Yeah. Hurry up. You know. <laughs> but you, but you have enough confidence in your in your craft to know that it probably come. Yeah, yeah. It is. It is. It, it's. It's just. It's craft, but it's also something else. It's, yeah. it's interesting, you know. You know, it's, it's hard you to know, explain. Noble Sissel's daughter saying, "I I just want to be remembered." And and a week earlier, because that number is a week old, yeah, we end up putting in a number. They won't remember you, uh, you know. And it's and you were tapped in. You knew yeah, that. You were tapped. Who knows? Who knows? But it was I, when she yeah. said that. I thought a hole was going to blow in the back of my head. And uh, it's just there's just certain moments that I think it's 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 about creating I remember I, I tell this story often I was working on a play in college and, and it had music connected to it it wasn't a musical and I was over talking to the composer and the cast was on a break and they were over there making noise and I was just like come on guys get quiet we're working and I'm over there and I was talking to the body and they kept on making noise and I said come on come on come on and then at one point just while I was ready to get annoyed they were over in a corner and they had solved the moment and so and that's the wonderful thing going back to that sense of community yeah if you have the right energy in the room and you have wonderful smart people anyone can have the answer Right, and you just be willing to collaborate. Well, you have not to. willing. It's 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 one of the joys. If everybody is vulnerable to the moment, yeah. the solution is there. And it, I was sort of. I'm always excited because you know when you hear people that you, young people are like, you know, I want to be a dancer. That's there's still a place for it. Yes, you know, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, and there are so many amazing uh, dancers oh, in the oh, show. Oh, and they're so and they're so like the youngest one is 22, and they're just so they're 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 brave and they're beautiful and they're hardworking and no oh, you got to be oh right? my god oh my god it was a beautiful moment last night were you at the show last night no Did i wasn't you, oh that uh, you know when um uh adrian warren is had the cigarette she comes out with the cigarette holder uh, like right when she walked out, the cigarette fell out and it's on the floor burning. I get very hung up on that. Yeah, yeah, I love you know, it. Because there's part of me that's sort of like, it's okay, there's, don't, I hope no one steps on that. Is someone going to do something about that? And then at some point, like, you know, she's going on and she doesn't have to drag off it so she doesn't notice. But I was wondering how they acknowledge that. You know, like, because I always like those weird little human moments. Oh, that's funny. And and she doesn't talk much and she's sort of in the background, but she did find a place to go like, oh, I lost my cigarette. And then one of the dancers who was kneeling on over here picked up the cigarette and gave it to her so she could hold it again. And I love that they had to deal with. Oh, that. absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> it was a, it was a, it was a great moment. So, like to to finish up a little bit, like how do you work with actors? Like you've worked with you know Meryl Streep, you've worked with you know Jeffrey Wright, you've worked with Patrick Stewart, you've worked with the, all these this cast, a musical cast. I mean, when you you know what what is the how do you enter that relationship? Yeah, I mean, you know who you're working yes. with. Yeah, yeah. No, but, but I mean, to me, to me, I think there are, I think there are two fundamental schools of directing. 
You either stand where you are yeah. and demand people come to you or you go to where they are and and then engage, talk, seduce, you know, question and then take them on the journey of where you think they as as their character should end up. The first one is much more efficient. The second one is much harder, but it's much richer because because what you're doing, they have actors, every single person on the planet has secrets Yeah, from having lived on the planet as long as they've lived on. And so that if you create a healthy, clean environment, and I don't mean clean by any way other than where you're, it's not about your ego or your will. If you create an environment where they feel safe, they will not just bring deliver on the role but they will deliver their secrets that they know as human beings and so and then audience can feel that and audience can feel when they're in the presence of that my, my sister said something really fascinating she said she said I, she said I, she was there on open night she said at times I, I felt like I wasn't watching actors she felt like I was watching those people yeah and and there were moments and it's interesting when you're in previews you sit toward the back of the theater so you aren't don't make a, a silly spectacle of yourself when yeah. you're screaming and yelling and writing down notes so on opening night I said close to the stage Audrey McDonald complained she said because I saw you as soon as I walked out on stage and it was very annoying <laughs> <laughs> and, but I was watching that close and I was seeing all the dancers work and, and all the conversations that we had in the room they were invested in every single moment that they were on stage they were not just coming out there doing steps because one of the things I said to them over and over at any given moment everybody in this play is telling the story the audience is watching every single thing you do so you're either committed to elevating the material because if you're not committed then you're lowering the standard of the material and they had all invested in that and they had all claimed lovely special wonderful moments so I felt so proud because I felt as though all the work that we had been doing allowed them to feel like it was everybody, it was their show. Okay, yeah, and that makes sense. And ownership. I mean, and also I read, I, I'm, it was a, I'm trying to remember who it was. I read this French film director, I'm trying to remember who it was, who said, the one, the second you spit, you, 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 you attack an actor's spirit, they never recover. They never trust you again the same way. Hmm. They just a part. They will do the work. They will do the job, but they never a part of their spirit will never ever trust you again. And that's where you get that you protect yes. the process and the vulnerability. Precisely, exactly. Yeah. You yeah. know exactly, and and you work and you and you work, and 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 so I I I work very hard in, in never allowing my own fear or damage or doubt to, to cloud the room. I, I work very, very hard on that because I remember, I, I, I will never forget, I saw, I was in, I was in an ice cream uh, parlor one time and there was a young father there with his, with his wife and she was pregnant and they had three children. Yeah. And, and I saw, and he told everybody could buy whatever they want and they had a limited amount of money and the kids being kids ordered the most expensive thing and he became very frustrated and embarrassed. So he then yelled at the wife and the wife then yelled at the oldest kid and the oldest kid then yelled at the smallest kid and you just saw this dynamic of if you abuse, it, it, it doesn't leave the room. Broken it gets spirit. spread around. Yeah, It gets spread around and so that therefore 
if 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 you create if you bring unnecessary energy into the room, it doesn't leave. It just spreads around. And then in the in the the opposite of that is is something that I'm in re- in talking to you. I realize that you know even if theater. Uh, as we know it, 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 Broadway or whatever, that the ideas and experiences that happen there eventually, not unlike, you know, shuffle along, be, begin to inform the entire culture. Precisely. Exactly. That, that, you know, even if no one sees the play that is out there somewhere. Precisely. That those conversations and those 100%, emotions 100%. spread out exactly. all around the world. It's spread out all around the world. I mean, there was this, exactly, and, and, and it alters people's, it alters it, it, it alters in very subtle ways. It's what was so fascinating. There was this story that after Shuffle Around was a big hit in New York. It went to uh, Boston, and all and all these uh, black people were showing up and buying tickets for the show, and the theater the theater owners were wondering if they're going to have an all black audience but it turned out all these very wealthy white people had sent their chauffeurs and their butlers to buy the tickets <laughs> but it's just it's just the phenomenon of that and i don't know what that was whether that was just convenience whether that was embarrassment i have no idea but it was just it's like i love the idea of all these black people they're buying tickets for this quote unquote black show yeah. for their for their for their white employees to come see it there's already some kind of weird odd dialogue Beginning to happen in that, a fast really, and that just happened. And, no, no, this was oh, this okay, was no, then. this was back in 1921. Say, like, no, like, not now. Yeah, no, no, in no. In my no. mind, because like Boston is one of the more strangely still segregated. One hundred percent, exactly. No, this was like 1920, like 1922 when it, not 22, oh, when it started to go. So it's just it's it's it really is just fascinating how these little subtle differences, how it can how it can reverberate. How you know it's a conversation of angels. How whatever you know whatever show, Fun Home, Hamilton, whatever it is I don't care what it is it it, it begins to it it, it, it be, there is this trickle around yeah and also like you know with angels and and you know in light of the AIDS crisis that you know however it managed to change dialogue around that and then ultimately becomes a, an HBO piece yeah, and then it just sort of it keeps building the conversation yeah, exactly. sometimes later than it should exactly. but 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 it does exactly. it forms everything not unlike in shuffle along where you know that changed theater that it changed completely and totally changed Broadway and 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 now because you know may may, may our revival run for a long time because it's like now and now these names that should be known are being known again and also people like me are going to go home and look at you know look up these people yes and, and exactly en- engage in the history exactly of it and learn exactly something. exactly and and working with savion how do you say savion savion glover again well, well that must have been great he's like the the tap guy he is he is the tay is the tap guy is like the, <laughs> the tap guru no so i i you know i i think i i i met savion when he was 17 uh-huh you know, because he was in Jelly. Yeah. You know, and then we worked together on, and and then and then he was in Jelly on tour. And then when I took over the public, I said, "Come make a show here." And then he said, "Well, I want to make it with you." And then as a result of it, and I, I'd, I'd recently been to see a Knicks game, and I saw, you know, the you know the rhythm, how rhythm was controlling the crowd, and yeah. I went, "Oh, I want to play around with." 
with making an audience from the time they sit down to the end respond to a rhythm so that they realize they are part of the rhythm and they are connected to the rhythm and noise funk sort of grew from that phenomenon and it happened in that show and shuffle along as Besides well 100 did he do all the choreography he did all the choreography yes it was stunning absolutely. it was yeah. stunning yes well i think we covered it okay a lot do you I, I feel good. I feel good. <laughs> Your brain was working. Yeah, I guess so. Sometimes, mostly. We didn't do a lot of, like, you know, like w where you come from and, and what your experience was, you know, getting into theater. We, let, let's do a little of that. Okay. W where did you come from? I'm from Frankfurt, Kentucky. Wait, oh, is that mid-Kentucky? That's that... sort of, it's like probably about an hour. No, it's northern. I yeah. guess it's probably an hour and a half or something like that from Cincinnati. It's the capital. It's a very tiny little town. Big family? Yes, yeah, not big family. You know, four, one, two, yeah, four, four, four brothers and sisters, three. Yes, yeah, I'm yeah. the fourth one. Yeah. And uh, and my town was segregated for the first five years of my life. Oh, first really? probably seven years of my life. Do you ever? Do you remember that? I well, I was so protected from that, but I remember very specifically Martin Luther King. There was a march on Franklin, and Martin Luther King came to town, and my grandmother, who was a formidable figure took me out of school and we marched and you we marched across the bridge up to the state capitol where he spoke and then there's this wonderful story that my cousin Teresa tells that she had, she had, she was by this time all of the, the school system were were integrated and and my cousin was probably like in sixth grade and they went to see, and she and a friend of hers went to see Martin Luther King speak uh -huh. and then they said okay well let's go back and we're going to be suspended now and this because they had been warned that if they took left school, they were going to be suspended. And this um, and this man said, what did you say? And they said, well, our principal told us that if we left, we were going to be suspended. He said, come with me. And then he took them backstage to Martin Luther King. They got in the car. Martin Luther King then drove to Second Street School and knocked on the principal's door and went in and talked to him. And then they were not suspended. <laughs> so these just sort of wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stories that I so all the, so all the stories that I was told and all the stories that were shared with me were not go down Moses powerless stories. Yeah. They were all stories of people in defiance of and celebration of community. So all of this stuff was was passed on to me. And so I felt very protected. It was happening. The one thing that I remember very specifically that I viewed my grandmother as this formidable person who no one could stop. And she was incredibly very protective of me when uh, 101 Dalmatians uh -huh. came to Frankfurt it was playing at the Capitol Theater, and the Capitol Theater was the segregated theater, and there was the Grand, where the black people sat in the balcony, and 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 then and the white people, and generally the white lower class people, yeah. sat sat down on the first floor, and I wanted to see 101 Dalmatians. Going back to my Disney obsession, and my grandmother calling up and wanting to know the show times and explaining that she was colored or negro whatever word she told and they told her she couldn't bring me and so that was the that was sort of the first time seeing being in the presence of this person who was like a superhero yeah. who was like thor or whatever who could knock down walls that i saw there was a wall that she couldn't knock down yeah and and all everything that you just said in those two minutes are the themes of, of how you approach theater, protection, defiance, and community. Exactly, 100. It's very interesting, very much so. And it was put in that, that with community, we have protection, and it's our job to defy. Exactly, it is. And that's how I was raised. I was raised to be 
I was, I was, I was, I was, I call it an integration warrior. I was trained to invade. Yeah. I was trained to invade rooms. And then once I got in the room, it wasn't enough that I was in the room. I had to open the doors and redefine the texture of the room. That was my thought process at the public theater. And it wasn't specifically about race. It was very much so invite people into this building who can work and play. So so that sort of training, and that's what I consider, and it's very much so a legacy of Joe Papp, but it's very much so a legacy of my family, is that once you're in the room, you have a responsibility to create as many opportunities for as many people as you possibly can. And then the, the, the community, the gay community and the black community, you know, is moving through you to some degree. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. Or just, and I just even consider it, it's like, you know, uh, when I was at the public, I would go, oh, they're, they're not going to, I don't know if another theater is going to hire them to do a play. I have to do their play. You know what I mean? Because I was, I, I, I was protected and I was, and very early on, you know, I've, you know, I've very, I've, I've had this, you know, I've struggled, but I've, you know, I, I got out of college and I struggled for 10 years, but then Color Museum was at the public theater in 1986 and six years later I was running the place. And then my first show was on Broadway was Jelly's Last Jam and I went, that was hard. It's going to take a lot of time. And then the next year I was back with Angels in America. And then in the middle of Angels in America, I got off the chance to run the public theater. And so I've had this sort of gloriously wonderful career. There have been sad moments and all this other sort of stuff, but but I've 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 felt it so incredibly blessed. So I feel this exaggerated sense of responsibility because not not as some plain penance for my success, but that's just what you do. And that's what and that's what was done for me very early on. And and I and you know, I went to to this school where it was like it was Negro History Week yeah. instead of month, and it was a black man invented the traffic light. There was literally it was like this it was borderline indoctrination. Go forth with armor, go forth with confidence, go forth knowing that you are smart and special so that therefore when you come into contact with resistance, no, it's about the person who is doing the resistance towards you. It's not about anything intrinsic in you. That was put in your head. Very, very, very early on. And the thing which was very interesting, then I then went to a public, predominantly white high school. I stuttered really intensely when I was little. So they decided I was stupid and spoke to my mother about putting me in remedial classes. And she went, you're crazy. That won't be happening. I didn't know any of this, <laughs> but I could tell because I was so spoiled as a child. I could tell when I was being dismissed. Yeah. So in my mind, I went, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. This won't be. And by the time, you know, I turned into Evita Perone. <laughs> so that by the time I left my high school, you know, I was, you know, an, I, was an editor, order. I was editor of the newspaper. I was a drama. I, I was the drum major. I was shit. I was no good at, but I just went out just to conquer. So, you know, and so, but I, that, and that sense of confidence but in every single step of the way it was interestingly enough it was theater that gave me my power my mother went away to get her doctorate at my university and she took me along and I was always obsessed with theater and I joined a theater group and that gave me the confidence to go back to begin to become oh the funny person at my high school and then when my when just before that time uh, she came to NYU to do some advanced degree work and she brought me along and that's when I saw New York theater so every single step of the way interesting theater to me wasn't just something that it was that was enjoyable theater was giving me my extra sense of my own power Mm. my extra sense of confidence and how to go into the world 
And I remember this moment very specifically. We, it was, I was probably like about 10 or 11. The principal at my school, we were invited to, uh, for some cultural exchange, PTA thing, for a predominantly white school in, in Frankfurt. And, and, I, and we sang this song, and the song, I don't remember any of the lyrics, these truths we are declaring that all men are the same, that liberty is a torch burning with the steady flame. And our principal told us that when we came to the line, that liberty is a torch burning with a steady flame. If we sing it with ferocity and intensity, all the racism in the room will fall away. And so I don't remember the next line. The song goes on for about four or five more lines. I don't remember because I just remember screaming that liberty is a torch burning with a steady flame. But I consider it the most astonishing thing because someone told me if I committed to the language, I could change the world. That didn't happen. But I believed it. And so to this very day, I believe it. So to this very day, when I go into a rehearsal room with actors, I, I pass on that, that, the power of committing to the language, committing to the words to them. And it informs how I do what I do. Beautiful. Thank you for talking, Thank you very George. much. Okay. If you can, I highly recommend seeing uh, Shuffle Along. It's uh, playing on Broadway at the Music Box Theater. I, I really uh, want to thank George for talking to me. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. You can check my tour dates coming up in July. I'll be going to Spokane and Salt Lake City and and uh, Bloomington, Indiana, and 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 Phoenix and 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 Albuquerque. I'm going to do one night in. I'm going to Rochester. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour to check my dates. All right? Okay. We good? All right. Play guitar? Sure. <laughs>